0: To Composing Myself, a special podcast series celebrating 50 years of great composers at Wise Music. Presented by Jill Graham and Dave Holly. Welcome to this week's Composing Myself. We're joined today by Bryce Desner, award-winning, multi-instrumentalist, amazing composer, jolly nice chap. Hi Bryce,
1: where are you today? Hi Joe, hi Dave, I'm in south of France where I live on the Basque coast, near not far from Biarritz. Oh, very nice.
2: That sounds lovely. It sounds better than London, which is gray and cold and drizzly and wet. Um, we we traditionally um, start these chats with with a question, um, which is about your first memory of music. The, what was the? Can you remember what was the first time a piece of music kind of slapped you across the face with this absolute amazingness,
1: and you went, "Ooh, what was that?" Um, I mean, it was definitely beat it, Michael Jackson. Um, uh being my first kind of awareness of recorded music i'm pretty sure I the neighbors brought a tape down of it um and yeah that one followed by probably my dad was a jazz drummer in the 60s and so we had a drum set in the basement and he um would always play so i was just sort of it was just sort of like listening to him play patterns on the on the drum set he like a like an old Slinglerland uh kit that was the the kit he got when he was 13 so that that drum set you know was always sort of around as we were kids Do, do you remember how it made you feel how beat it for example made made you feel um just kind of I think Michael Jackson was like just joy just the sound of you know um yeah, for me, is, you know, I didn't even know it was like discovering, you know, some kind of new new food or something. I didn't even know. It might have been the music wasn't even in my life until then. But, you know, I think that that um, I don't even know what year that that came out, but I would have been in my early, you know, five or six or something. So
2: I come from a town in nor- the north of England called Grimsby, and we have no famous musical connections except Rod Temperton. Who wrote a lot of the Michael Jackson songs, and I think he wrote "Beat It." So that, as a as a Grimsby man, I think you've chosen the the best first introduction to music.
1: Was it a musical family you grew up in? Uh, like I said, my you know, my dad was a, a jazz musician. Um, my mom was not a musician. My sister uh, was a dancer, and actually, I think she's probably the bigger influence on you know, my brother in terms of, she was the artist, always an artist, you know, so we just sort of grew up around, around her dancing and going to see her in the ballet would have been my f- first sort of classical music experiences going downtown to see the, often to see the Nutcracker or other pieces she was doing in Cincinnati. Um, and then, you know, sort of all through my childhood and then into high school and college, my sister Jessica was like this sort of just constant source of inspiration and of music, all kinds of music.
0: And what was your sort of first musical exploration for yourself, you know, as a performer? What did you, when did you start making music yourself?
1: I get asked this sometimes and people assume that I started playing rock music, you know, cause I still have that as part of my life, but actually um, I studied flute. Well, first recorder, then piccolo and then flute. Um, as quite young. And so all through my, you know, um, I think we were seven or eight or something and I've decided, I don't know why that I wanted a Fife actually. And then I properly kind of got, um, really into it and studied it all the way through high school. And, um, and so that was really my, you know, how I learned to read music. It was when I first started performing was little student recitals. Um, I remember I I sort of it was a clever move that I I did that because I, I basically all through my middle school and high school years they let me out of band class because I was too good for the teachers they had nothing to you know, yeah so they would give me an hour alone and the other kids would have to be in band class and I would get like an hour just to, and I ended up not using that hour to practice unfortunately I would just do other you know homework or something but um yeah and then in my teenage years I caught. You know, I basically, my dad had been playing drums and my sister was into punk rock and I went and rented myself. My brother was really good at sports and I wasn't so into sports. So I decided to, you know, fuck off of that. And when like rented a really crappy electric guitar, um, at the local mall and I, sad and tried to teach myself and then figured I'm not going to learn very much, you know, because I read music. I was like, well, how do you, how do you read music on the guitar? And so then I enrolled in the conservatory downtown Cincinnati Cincinnati Conservatory College of Music. And that's how I kind of connected all that was, um, and that's in my sort of 13, 14. And then through, then it just sort of went from there.
2: Yeah. I watched um, an interview you did. I'm not sure what it was for, but you were explaining what kind of inspired you to to be creative, really, or to, or to go down that route. And you said some good teachers contributed. And, and you also said there wasn't really a music department, but you sort of, you sort of helped make one. And there was a, an English teacher played the blues and a, I think a biology teacher played the fiddle. And somehow a department
1: kind of came together. Sounded like a lot of fun. Yeah, we went to a little school. It was, you know, one of these kind of fancy... American private schools, but with no music department that <laughs> a, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of football coaches, but no music. Um, good, good art teacher. And so, yeah, the, the um, Dorothy cross, no, not Dorothy cross what was her name. Um, Mrs. Cross was a, a biology teacher and she played fiddle like I played Irish fiddle. And so I, you know started we would play at lunchtime um and she showed me you know jigs and reels and on, on the on the fiddle or on the guitar and I would accompany her on guitar um and then my brother and I started to play at lunch and actually so Bob Patterson was the name of the English teacher who was brilliant and kind of um Bob Patterson and a guy named Robert Black were two history Bob has since passed away but Robert is uh Black is still there. And, you know, really interesting teachers who were way ahead of, they were teaching classes that I never even found at Yale, to be honest, where that, you know, we were doing like really in-depth um, short story writing and, you know, reading Raymond Carver and Donald Bartomee as like a 16-year-old. And, and, and Bob was this kind of renegade, you know, we would catch him outside smoking maybe before class. And, he was a bit of a, a rebel um, and played in the Paul Butterfield's Paul Butterfield blues band in the sixties. And was like this kind of strange um, electric piano, piano blues player. And so he basically taught us how to play, how to jam and we would at lunchtime, we would go play with him again, just out of, we just brought some instruments to school. And um, eventually one time we played, we play, we performed, I think for assembly with my, with my dad on drums. So that happened and our sort of my brother and I would play and, and Bob would show us stuff. So that way, yeah, it was, it was an interesting time. Yeah. For some reason we were smart enough to realize that writing music would be more interesting than just covering music, which I think is a trap that a lot of young musicians fall into. It's like making a really good cover band, but then you end up playing guitar like Jimmy Page, which is amazing, but Jimmy Page did that pretty well. So we, you know, quickly I started to kind of, um, invent things on the guitar and, um, my brother as well.
0: Yeah. It's no surprise hearing what you've just told us that, you know, improvising with Mrs. Cross, which I love that notion at lunchtime doing a bit of Irish folk, you know, that then you, you know, your, if you like your performing life is both rock music improvising, you know, when you founded the band clogs, for example, you know, and then also a huge, uh, portfolio of classical work, not to mention film work, which we'll come on to later. But you know, now you're in all that, wor- all those worlds. How do you balance your time between them? Because they all move at different paces, right? Classical music is sort of glacial. Rock music is very fast. Film music is well, you're under someone else's control, aren't you? Really? So uh, it, it's a lot to juggle, I imagine.
1: Yeah, I think um, it's always been. Interesting to me, um like when I was studying in school, composition was always fundamental um whether I was and it was part of an education, really learning about writing for different ensembles, for different soloists and and that's the joy of it still is just learning how to communicate better um, and how to how to make an idea that both has intentionality in it as far as what I imagine and I'm dreaming of, but leaves space for interpretation and for magic to happen. Cause it's not what's on the page. It's what, what is being heard in the, in the room that is the music, you know? So it's, um, and that's always whether I'm writing a song for the band or a little idea for a film or a concerto, the impetus and the creative spark is similar. Um, they're different, um, different speeds, different, you know, um, different seasons. You know, if you're writing a big classical piece, you kind of need to just wipe the slate clean and just do that. Um, I've gone through phases of writing music on airplanes. I've gone, you know, during COVID I was locked in this room doing nothing but writing a trombone concerto and a violin concerto, um, and Mari for orchestra. Um, and then, you know, part of the diversity of my life is nice because you can kind of, when you start feeling sick of your own voice and your own solitude, you can go, you know, make some music with human beings in a room. And just, you know, recently I played some guitar for a French artist who asked me if I would spend a couple of days with him in the studio. And it was really fun just to be a guitarist or, um, so I like that. And I think it's important to open process up. Sometimes I think the, the road of a composer can be like narrowing down into the smallest version of yourself or the easiest version to kind of present or, um sometimes there's a little bit of that sense of um because you're existing in a tradition that is very old and full of geniuses there's a bit of a kind of um you know you're playing in a kind of god field of you know trying to you know and even even literally you'll get you know sometimes destroyed by critics because you don't sound like Brahms or you know <laughs> told by an institution that your piece doesn't fit well next to the uh you know Romeo and Juliet overture or whatever it is. So it's it, sometimes it's good to be humble about that and not, you know, I think for me having different activities has been really, really helpful. And, um, and just in terms of process, sometimes I love just to see what other people are doing, you know, how, how in terms of technology or even in, you know, an actual, um, you know, their, their process in the studio, all those things is really interesting. And, and, and the, the diverse sort of things that I do helps me, helps me have those experiences.
0: And I suppose, in a sense, one feeds the other. You know, what you're doing in the studio with an artist one day, perhaps on an improvisational basis, then feeds into the band, feeds into just that sort of creative spark that you describe. And uh, is there a... Do you adapt different processes when you're writing, you know, for a classical piece? Have you got a sort of routine that works best for
1: you? Morning, evening? Yeah, I work best in the morning especially with the classical pieces. Um, and I, um, I typically with a piece when I have a, I get a lot from who's asking me to write it. Um, it's often a soloist or it's a conductor, or maybe it's, you know, uh, a string orchestra or a string quartet or something, but there's always something with that, that, um, you know, a personality or a certain way of playing or, it, uh, maybe a topical thing where they, you know, it's about something or they want me to consider something and that really helps open a door. And so I'll take notes, um, in manuscript by hand for, for months, usually as I'm sort of circling around an idea, it's difficult for me to just write some music without a sense of where I'm going. Uh, and once I have a decent idea, it can sometimes write itself pretty quickly. Um, so on the piano, usually I'll have, Scores I like to study. You know, if I'm writing a violin concerto, I'll study many other concertos to sort of get us in especially for the virtuosic language, to kind of understand some of the the limitations. And you know, when I like to write up against virtuosity in a way that's exciting and not destructive. You know, where it's you know you're asking people. Um, I, you know, I love hearing part of the joy of working with classical musicians is their artists who've spent their lives mastering their instruments, and you know learning how to play together and how to tune together and how to phrase together. And so unlocking that magic is something that, you know, I find through listening to recordings, through studying scores with great conductors to get a sense of, you know, um, all of that is really, and and it's a constant learning process. So um, I'll, you know, I'll say, I'll have sort of just like blocks of material sitting on a manuscript and then eventually I come to, to, to the computer and I'll start writing into Sibelius on you know, I have a lot of gear in here and I'll be, but I'm pretty much working for manuscript. You know, I'm not, I don't, I don't sequence music um, and then deal with it later. I know a lot of musicians who are sort of coming more from film or rock music. That's how they're working, which I'm the opposite actually. Um, It's always in score first. Um, And then, but I do with each piece. Sometimes I set myself a challenge of I'll send myself emails of rules of saying no repetition or, you know, (laughs) trying to say, you know, no, just sort of like like things I might have done in the the previous piece. I'll sort of ban them, which is maybe not not great for my publishers to hear. You know, <laughs> sometimes sometimes like if you get a good thing, like why not repeat it? One one of the things that looking at looking at your work because it's
2: so broad and it's so deep and and there's such volume. You know, it skips across genres as we as we've discussed, but you also have different roles from key composer performer you know you you produce you also
1: curate festivals of music do you ever get any time off I'm actually pretty good that's a good question I'm pretty good at taking time off I don't have that um the problem of I I wouldn't say I'm a workaholic in a um I love having time especially in nature I have a six-year-old son I love spending time with him and my wife Pauline um I think it's really necessary. I often have epiphanies when I'm, when I'm blocked on something, I just take time away from music. And um, I had that recently with the piano concerto that I'm writing now for Alice Sarah Ott, where I took some time and then it kind of occurred to me what the piece is about. Um, And that just comes from, from being, usually being in nature being, you know, in the mountains or something and kind of having time to, to breathe. And, um, and I've gotten better at that, you know, and frankly, I think in the, the pandemic was a good sort of a punctuation point on maybe of how I'd been living up until that point. And, the, and things have shifted. I'm traveling less. I have more time at home. Um, we're about to start another cycle with the band. So hope we'll see how I deal with that. But, um, but I, um, I think it's important to, to give, put some space around the notes, some space around the music. And uh, I mean, ironically, I wrote a piece called impermanence, which is like a you know big string quartet written for the Australian string quartet for, a, a, as a dance piece for the Sydney dance company that's been performed a lot. And that, that piece is about impermanence, which I think when I was writing it, I didn't understand entirely what that, you know, obviously that's a, a big, big fundamental idea within the Buddhist tradition. But I think that, um, having a, a bit of, um, remove and perspective on what I'm doing. And, and in a way the notes themselves, they're like, you know, they're in the air, they're in the air and then they're gone and trying to catch them and put them on paper or whatever it is. It's, um, um, yeah, I mean, it depends on the day, but the, the state of mind, but, um, I'm more and more interested in being in a, in a kind of rested, happy space when I'm writing and not, not a sort of tortured, um, you know, writing under deadline is rarely fun, but it's necessary, especially when dealing with orchestras and institutions, it's just how, how it works. You know, there are other artists who don't, you know, a lot of, you know, my friend, Stephen Stevens, he doesn't, ever work under, under deadline um he only works not knowing what he's doing you know and he's sort of like free in that way and it's quite a, it's quite attractive um he doesn't get to write for big orchestras you know so for me if you love that if you love that medium you have to kind of deal with some of the rules <laughs> have you ever struggled to write you know had
2: had writers block or any anything like that
1: i can always pick up an instrument shit at the piano or pick up an instrument and i improvise really easily um, so no, I I don't struggle to write. I might struggle to write something good. Um, you know, where it's and again, because I'm I'm not working from one specific point of view where I, I do like to challenge myself every time. Um and some some of these challenges, you know, writing a violin concerto, writing a double piano concerto, I mean, it's a daunting task when you're at the f- foot of that mountain I was uh, fascinated
0: by the piece that you wrote during lockdown which is Mari and that I know that that period of where the world was isolated from itself uh you had the opportunity to spend time with your dear friend and huge supporter Semyon Bishkov and I I just wanted to talk a little bit about that you know how Mari came to be within that period
1: yeah Mari um was commissioned, was a personal request from Semyon um, to write for his great orchestra, the Czech Philharmonic, which, you know, for me was one of the sort of great things of, you know, I have written for some amazing conductors and orchestras. Um, to write for a European ensemble of that caliber was like a huge opportunity. Semyon is a really incredible and very deep um, conductor. Um, and, and also quite different than, you know, I've, I've worked with conductors who are mostly focused on, you know, new pieces or maybe American repertoire where Semyon is really versed in Mahler and um, Janacek and Shostakovich. Um, and, you know, has, he has a really um, Dvorak, um, you know, he's, he's, he's performing a lot of big pieces, um and very, he kind of lives, he's this incredible, he, so he lives about 20 minutes from, for me. He's, he's Marielle Lebec, who is one of my Marielle Katia and Marielle are two of my closest collaborators who I wrote the double piano concerto for. And Marielle is married to Semyon. So it's like a family, a family um, unit in a way. And we're quite close, but he is the sort of imposing figure. And and so I just started basically visiting his library, and sometimes he would be there, and sometimes he'd be working, and sometimes we would just talk about music, and it it gave me a chance to, to delve into some of his music, some of the music that the Czech Philharmonic are really fond of playing, um, Czech music, um, specifically Dvorak, and um, and then even more so Mahler. Actually, um, at that time, Semyon was recording uh, Mahler symphonies, and. And Mahler, you know, that music, um, the kind of high romantic, um, late 19th century, early, th- early 20th century music is not the first place I have gone for inspiration. Um, I'm very, you know, deeply versed in, you know, the, the next or two generations later, if you're, you know, thinking early 20th century music, like the Bartoks, the Stravinsky's, even the Ludoslavsky, uh, Messiaen, those are all huge due to you, all huge influences on me, um, but I haven't, you know, and then, you know, looking back further, Renaissance music, uh, partly because it's what I performed on the guitar, um, a lot of John Dallin, a lot of Bach, um, a lot of earlier, earlier 12th century polyphony, like perotone, all that music is is also very fertile ground. A lot a lot of contemporary composers have sourced in there. Um, but the high romantic music is not something that I've studied. I mean, I've studied it in school, but, and I love listening to it, Um but it was really interesting to kind of listen to his his recordings and listen to his orchestra and try to find a way in. And I was, again, walking in the woods here um, when the world was shut down. And I started to imagine him essentially, what if the, you know, we always think the, the orchestras, it's like, you know, every every major city has an orchestra or several. And, and they're kind of... Um, they're, uh, they're an institution. They're, there's just something per- permanent about it. Um, but in fact, it's as fragile as anything. And it, like during the pandemic, the the idea of getting 80 people on stage to play music together became the most difficult thing to do. And that's why our sector the performing arts um, and in classical music became really, really tricky. Um, and, you know, we all had many premieres canceled, you know, musicians were out of work. And I was imagining that, you know, the leader of that institution and just sort of wandering around wondering what's next and sort of his memories his this music that has been so much a part of his life kind of slowly fading or kind of merging or collecting you know his his what what is his imagination is it is it is it one piece is it 10 is it figments of it is it four notes is it you know bits of phrases here and there and um and I just that sort of opened a door for me into writing Mari, which is this piece. Mari is the Basque goddess of the forest. So there's a whole uh, the, this region that I've fallen in love with, which I moved here because of the Lebec sisters and Semia and also David Shellman, my close friend, is um, was one of the last parts of Europe to become Christian. So it's a very late pagan tradition. That still a lot of local customs are based in that tradition, and like and the, the language here is the old, which is very important. It's the oldest spoken language in Europe, and and so the Mari is kind of like the important um, DS or, you know, goddess figure who's, which makes sense because the forests are just these incredible old growth oak forests. And um, Mari is also obviously Marielle. So I wrote the piece called Mari. i is dedicated to Marielle. Um, and with this idea of this sort of, um, and so the, the, the language of the piece is quite different where it has these sort of strong shifts and juxtapositions. I did work a lot on thinking about, him as a conductor. And, and like I had said previously, finding a way to, you know, to unlock his expressive techniques and his ability to shape the music and shape the, shape the sound and push the orchestra. And, and, you know, that in terms of, you know, putting information into the score that gives him a lot to work with. Um, and yeah, the piece I would say sort of exists somewhere between, you know, my music what you're used to hearing. And then there are definite nods towards Mahler. There's, you know, Dutia, who was a really close friend of Semyon's figures as well. And I think that Dutia's orchestral music is probably for me like a pinnacle of what um, artistically I think a composer can be, a sort of the poetic power of that music, like in his scores, I find. So that, you know, knowing about that close relationship that Semyon had with Dutia was also a big influence on the piece.
2: a collaborative partner and a, a collaborative project do, do you have a sort of offers coming from various places or interests that you've
1: got how, how, how do you choose one to start working on tomorrow as it were i remember i had a, an, I got asked by interview magazine to interview philip glass several years ago and i think i might have asked a question like that which is really amazing because like just to hear his response and i didn't under he was he basically sort of he dodged it or sidestepped in a really nice way where he essentially said, oh, I just do what's in front of me. But I think what it was coming from this very wise, very developed sense of what's interesting, you know, I, and I, I definitely would have never put myself on his level of, um, you know, yes, you say in, in French, you know, just, but I, I I say yes too often. That is absolutely, as Jill knows, like, you know, uh, a problem. Um, I'm really excited by collaboration. I tend to be most excited by things outside of music by choreographers, visual artists, writers. Um, I have many close friends who are either visual artists or choreographers. Um, you know, and I'm so I love I just get really inspired by working with I, I I find that, especially in terms of visual artists, I find the conceptual and you know kind of theoretical basis for pieces and ideas a a bit more advanced or less reactionary than sometimes you find in, in specifically in music or classical music. It it can be fairly um, sometimes a bit reactionary or conservative, you know, where I think sometimes just even speaking to a visual artist about their work, you know, like they're, they're not trying to you know, like we're presenting music in a concert hall with a set of musicians. It can be incredibly radical, but it's still like you're putting a painting up in the Sistine chapel, you know, on some level, there's this feeling of you have to deal with tradition no matter what Where sometimes visual artists are a bit that they're a bit freer to, to throw out the rule book. Um, And so I love that side of collaboration. Um, Certain film directors um, can be incredibly inspiring. I think in a similar way, the film environment when it's, I mean, it can be soul crushing if it's the wrong type of work, but if it's empowered and the composer is given a lot of agency and brought in as an equal artist, um, it can be really exciting because it's, it's, it's essentially composing for a different form because it's also not only is it in service of a narrative and, um, there's a sense of, you know, in, in 30 seconds, you can do something quite profound and quite detailed. And also in a surround environment, you know, you're working in direct collaboration with a sound design team. Um, so all of that, you know, is part of why I enjoy doing it similar with, you know, a certain soloist or conductor or all of those things. It just, it feeds me the collaborative side. So I think collaboration is also, and frankly, with, with my colleagues, you know, with Jill Graham, um, with the team at at Wise Music, you know it, it's collaboration. it's I see them as creative partners, you know, not as business people. they're they're it's it's a collaborative environment, and that's what's really you know exciting to me.
0: I think it was no surprise, Bryce, that another great advocate of your music, Essa Salonen, uh, also published by Chester Music. Ding, ding. Um, he invited you to be one of the creative partners for the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra, along with composer Nico Muley, composer Nick Bretel, Pekka Cusisto, uh, for whom you wrote your violin concerto. Has that um, attachment to that orchestra helped change how you're working in a sense? what's it brought to you I suppose because it's brought great things to them but what are you getting out of it
1: yeah i think that um well i, I think specifically asapicason is um just a firebrand uh, like a he's a lightning rod um person where he 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 exists in his own um sphere really you know uh, as one of the great living composers and you know such a important and phenomenal conductor and then on top of that a good guy and a fin, and kind of doesn't suffer fools and so you you know he he can make space for others and that's essentially what he did he got asked to take over san francisco symphony which is one of america's great orchestras and having already kind of done everything he's like well i don't I, i think that you know he made the choice that he wanted other voices in the room, which is sort of the the opposite of how what I was saying about, you know, the composer and the sort of sense of ego or the conductor or you know, music director of an orchestra tends to be the sort of top down feeling where Esapeco essentially made a, you know, a coup and saying, you know what, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to create a team and we're not going to really have a plan. We're just going to talk. Um, it's like, I, the closest thing to it would be something like a think tank, um, where you just hang out and sort of riff and with really fascinating people, Claire Chase, um, who is a fluidist, new music practitioner, complete genius, um, Julia Bullock, incredible singer and artist. um, um, you mentioned Nick Bertel, Becca Cushisto, uh Nico Muley, who's like a long, long time friend of mine. Um, so the uh, Esperanza Spalding, the jazz bassist singer, who's amazing. Um, and yeah, it's been really interesting for me to have an environment where I can speak with colleagues in a really open way um, about all kinds of things. So we do calls and and then on top of it, they kind of, you know, as of, you know, up to, up to now anyway, they've really been putting their, you know, putting things Kind of giving us Carp blanche with the orchestra. For me, it was commissioning violin concerto. And then S Pekka took the piece on and Pekka just took the piece on tour and you know played it in Paris and played it in Chicago. And it's been played in Hamburg and London. And I think, you know, that's a again a once-in-a-lifetime situation um to have m- music. Um essentially for the, you know, I think that more and more um And Esapek is a leader in that in a way he's in, but this is going back in terms of his work at the LA Phil and all the the space that he's opened up for others. You know, I say that like in our band, we say that about like, you know, REM did that for rock music or something, but I think Esapek has done it on some level for, um, for other composers and for institutions to say, Hey, this is, let's take this seriously. Let's, 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 let's be innovative and committed about new programming and the audience will come you know, and the, and the art will evolve. And eventually, and I think part of him kind of involve, involve inviting collaborative partners into the room is, is also very wise saying, you know, and I'm, you know, in my sixties and I, we, you know, like the world is moving and I need to make space also for other voices. And, um, and that's a very good lesson and something that I'll, that I'll take uh, take to heart for, for my career as well.
0: And I think it's also broadened the San Francisco Symphony's uh, outlook, if you like, because not only have they brought together a community of wonderful musicians, but they've brought your communities to the orchestra as well, you know. And I think, you know, if culture's really going to survive in what we call the, here comes the digital age, there's not going to be no more live music anymore. I think initiatives like that really help preserve live music. Uh, 'cause there's quite nothing quite like it, actually, then I was thinking this morning uh, I'd watched Bardo uh, film your second film with Alejandro in and I just wanted to ask you about that collaboration because that seemed to have pretty much lit an inferno for both of you,
1: yeah, um. I, I mean, it's a good example of how these things interconnect. I, I had a piece quilting, which was written for Gustavo Dudamel in the Los Angeles Philharmonic, um, 2015 or 14, I think, that was premiered there. And in, in Alejandro, who's one of Gustavo's closest friends and um, you know one of the world's great film directors, was, was there and fell in love with my music. Um, I didn't meet him, but he. He placed Lacrime, which I had written in a string orchestra piece, um, which had been recorded for Deutsch Gramophone, was placed in The Revenant, I think for months before any of us knew about it. And then I got a call that summer from him saying, um, you know, Ruichi R- R- Sakamoto, is one of the masters of film music and a big idol of mine, was doing the score. But essentially, Alejandro asked me to um, to help, you know, essentially write a third of that score um, and collaborate directly with Ruichi and then we brought on an electronic artist Alvinotto to help it's like a again extremely collaborative um, humbling beautiful experience The Revenant is one of the great films of the last 20 years I would say and um, and I, you know sometimes film music they ask you to more and more like the first time that, you know when a, when a director calls me I say okay if you want Hans Zimmer don't call me it's like the first thing I say it's like we can have a nice conversation now, but I don't want to hear like in a month like, a bunch of temp tracks, you know, by Alexander Spat. It's like just call him; he'll probably say no. But it's, <laughs> so you know, that's always like the the great thing about Alejandro is he doesn't he, for, you know, the Revenant, the music I wrote for that for that score could be my is like my exactly like my concert music. Like he, you know, um, the first thing he said when he called me is like no guitars. You know, And then I actually wrote about two hours of cello music and recorded it all and sent it to him. You know what? I'm thinking, I'm just really sorry. I'm thinking no cello. <laughs> okay, no problem. Um, but yeah, we became, it was one of the most amazing creative experiences in my life. The most rigorous, demanding, artistically ambitious. Um, you know, Alejandro always says, like if I'm pointing at the moon, don't draw my finger. Um, you know, that's which I think is exactly... What you want a collaborator to say, um, so he's always up for you to dream and kind of go for it. Um, and yeah, we did The Revenant and we became really good friends and spent a lot of time together in the you know almost 10 years in between the two films. Um, he would visit me here in France, I would visit him in LA, I spent time in his house in Mexico. Out There's a piece called El Chan that I wrote for Katia Maria Lebec that is the title track of the album for Deutsche Gramophone for which Alejandro did the cover um, that was written for, it was inspired by his hometown in Mexico in a sort of post Messia kind of way where the the landscape itself, I wrote the piece based on these myths that are associated with the, with the landscape of San Miguel de Allende. So there's like a long history there. And then, yeah, when he started working on Bardo, which is an extremely deep, extremely personal, important film, he contacted me and we spoke about it for two or three years prior to working on the score. And then what's beautiful about that score is Alejandro, he on set, he would kind of whistle these little tunes. And he started collecting, collecting these field recordings of little, little folkloric tunes that he would hear. And, and so those tunes, tunes, I was able to weave into the score. And so in the end, we kind of co-signed the score where, you know, I wrote a ton of Music and was able to kind of bring in. There's a few major pieces in the film that are co-written with Alejandro, and it was like you know, he um, he was very shy about even you know. I, I, we started as it became clear that some of these melodies were going to be in there. I was like, well, so what's your? Did you write some music? What, what are we calling you? Are you a composer? Like, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. But um, but frankly, you know, I think it's um, been one of the great professional and personal. Um, relationships that I've been very fortunate to have, and also to kind of, with the current landscape of pop culture and you know, the change changes in in filmmaking, and um, you know more and more it's difficult for independent artistically driven films to even get out of the get out of the gate, you know, or get into the theater, you know, with essentially the the, the films that are drawing big, uh, tickets are mostly superhero movies and sequels of, you know, blockbusters and this kind of thing. And so to have one of the, you know, a great ambitious filmmaker who is in no way pandering, you know, um, and to be able to work not just with him, but with the kind of you know, the huge teams around him of people that he's hand selected over 25, 30 years, you just meet these amazing, amazing, um, you know, Darius Conji, who's uh, um French, Iranian uh, cinematographer who's nominated for an Oscar for the film, um, you know, just even getting to spend time with him and learn about him, and you know, he he worked with Buñuel. Like to hear these stories is is completely fascinating. I'm always interested in the way people
2: react to music. Um, when you make music, are you, are you are you conscious of the audience of the audience you're creating it for, um, and when you send it out into the world, do you do you spend time Sort of gauging how it's been absorbed and processed and, and, and responded to? Does it affect you how, how audiences react?
1: I mean, <clears throat> the audience reaction is important, especially as a performer. Um, I'm used to being on stage and having that feeling, you know, and I've, more and more I'm also performing my own music. I, you know, I, I used to do it when I, no one else would play my music. Um, Jill mentioned clogs, which is a little quartet that I started in my 20s. And I did that for quite a while. And, and then eventually I started getting asked to write for better musicians, basically, and started writing for them. Um, and occasionally appearing, obviously, I play in the band, but it's in a way a different, um, different than playing, um, you know, notated music or more in a more chamber music setting or with orchestras. And um You know, when I wrote for the Ensemble Intercontemporain Contemporain Paris, I was asked to do that in 2015 or 16. And I decided to play um, as a strategy because it was like a cultural bridge of, you know, coming at that time, coming from New York and working with like the great avant-garde Ensemble of Europe, you know, that Boulez founded in 1973. And a lot of the original musicians are still there. And it's sort of, I remember, I think John Adams told me, he's like, oh, careful, you know, (laughs) a little word of warning there but actually they were incredibly generous and inviting. And I wrote my, it was a piece called wires that I wrote into, into the, um, I wrote electric guitar into the, into the piece to put myself on stage with them. And, you know, partly as a kind of to, uh, to bridge that gap and sort of, you know, stand behind my music. Um, but also I think, you know, selfishly to be amongst such incredible musicians and to feel the energy, uh, their energy around me, um, you know, the wires is a really—it's a poetic piece. It's a—it's—it's it's a weird piece in a way. It has no—you um, know—formally, it's not. It's just—it's almost like a poem or something. It's like the language, the musical language dictates the form. It takes a little journey, um, and then I think that the effect of it is transportative. It's—it's it's not a like a virtuosic showcase or something. Sort of burn the house down. The way the violin concerto—it's like it just sort of literally blows the roof off. Um, that's partly me. That's partly Pekka. That's partly Esa Pekka. Um, so I'm used to, you can have the certainly when you write a concerto, it's built into the form a little bit that you want to showcase the soloist, um, and virtuosity is one of those, you know, one of those elements to play with, um, the trombone concerto has been really well received. Jorgen van Regen is an incredible, incredible artist. I've recently done revisions to that piece, having heard it live finally, um, because there's some formal things I thought could be tightened a little bit. And then some very difficult things in the orchestra that I just gave them some, you know, some things that sometimes, you know, a modern composer can just stand behind like, no, oh, that that's the score. But I think as a performer, I, I hear it and I hear the result. I think, you know, there's a different way to do that. Um, and so, the, you know, certain little I love, you know, and I've done that um, with other pieces as well. Once you hear them live, you know, one of my first kind of formal works was a hame. Which was written before I was a Chester composer. It's published by Chester, but that, that piece um, was a kind of, I was asked by Kronos Quartet, which was like a huge influence on me as a kid to write that piece. And, um, and David Harrington, the kind of the founder and um, legendary violinist, he didn't say much about it, but he said, you know, the, the concert's going to be outside in, in Prospect Park in Brooklyn in front of 10,000 people. So probably shouldn't be too quiet. Right. And so my natural instinct is always first thing is kind of quiet and delicate and, you know, um, soothing or something. And so I thought, all right, well, so I just went for it and it was like, um, wrote this complete panic of a string quartet, which is probably my most performed piece. You know, it's, it has, and it pretty much works, you know, it, it really, um, you know, it's, it's a one kind of energy pretty much the whole time, but it, um, um, yeah. So anyway, I, I am, sensitive to the audience, but not, I think sometimes it can be a bit of, um, you know, it's always, always amazing when you get like, you know, standing ovation, people crying in the audience and then a bad review. And you're like, were you not there? (laughs) But it it doesn't just because, you know, these things, you never know. Um, It's always, sometimes you take it with a grain of salt, you know, try not to try to be humble and in front of your work. I was interested
0: to ask you actually, because, Pauline, your wife, the great um, pop musician, indie Minna Tyndall. What's it like living with another
1: singer-songwriter? The um, Yeah, Pauline, so my wife, um, Pauline, who is the reason I'm in, Fran- in France, um, and she's a great singer and a great songwriter. And she she actually comes from – she's like a self-taught folk musician – um with a really gorgeous lyrical voice but she comes from one of France's oldest musical families like her great great grandfather was Gounod and grew up like in the little house in Paris where his piano is played piano still is and her name last name is de La Su, which is like Orlando Delasso de same you know that sort of so, but she has little to no interest um except in my music you know she's not been someone in the in France the the divide is pretty extreme, I would say between classical musicians because of the, the rigor of conservatory at a really early age, it kind of weeds out. You basically either go the kind of straight path of becoming a classical musician or you don't. Um, and so you find less of a mix um, and, but she she's part of a really rich, interesting community of musicians of great songwriters um, in France. And, and she has, you know, amazing um like an amazing ear and she can come in you know she she loves to sort of help me write a melody um you know she'll come in she's like well what? you know no 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 why no, doesn't just it doesn't have to you know it doesn't sometimes melodically for instance the national we can be quite regular in our you know everything's in four bar phrases or something because that's how we think and you know our singer Matt is not necessarily phrasing over the bar or something where Pauline is thinking like she's heavily influenced by Nina Simone or, um, you know, French chanson or, and so she'll sometimes the, let the, let the, the line, the melodic idea, you know, take, take surprising turns. And so it's been really wonderful to have her musical energy as part of my life. And like, she'll literally walk in here and I'll, you know, be working on some, you know, crazy thing. And just like, Oh, well, why is he going to do that right now? It was really good what you were doing before. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> like it, it can appear really interesting on the page, but sometimes it's like, well, yeah, it's not as good as what I just did. So, um, yeah, but we we collaborate on um, on her music and in, in, you know, occasionally I'll like sample her voice or something and play with it in a, you know, something.
2: There's a, I wouldn't say an elephant in the room, but there's a one major project that, that's gone through your professional life, The National, which we've not talked about. And it's not really for this podcast but um you've got a new album out with the most intriguing title I just wanted to ask you about that it's called first two uh, first two pages of Frankenstein I went and read the first two pages of Frankenstein as a consequence of seeing that was it based on the book the um, the, the novel um, Frankenstein and where, where did that title come from
1: yeah the, the well the title came from Matt berer who's our singer and lyricist and he um he was suffering from a very extreme um kind of writer's block uh with that so we we had released two albums sort of back to back quite close together in 2017 and 19 um sleep all beasts and then easy to find and done a lot of touring and then with the world shut down and we had a break and we all went in different directions and we're doing different things and the band started to feel pretty distant to the future. And I think Matt was also struggling with all kinds of things and wasn't able to, we were writing music for him. My brother and I were sitting like working on a lot of stuff, but there was, you know, two almost three years of basically nothing happening or just he couldn't. And so finally we would even be in the room with him. And it was, um, yeah, I just think he was struggling to find, how he wanted to orient himself and, you know, how, what he wanted to sing about and, you know, having made eight or nine albums, it was, you know, what, what's even the point, you know, I think, I think there was a big question mark around the, the sort of yeah, sort of existential question about like, what, what is this anymore? And, and I don't know through, through supportive prodding and you know us like really really circling the wagons and kind of sticking together and historically the band we have fought a lot um creatively and we kind of like are i'm like in my avant-garde corner and matt's in his punk rock corner and scott and brian are over somewhere between like psychedelic rock and electronic music and my brother's like in like the sort of folk songwriting, you know, it's basically we, and we kind of position in it, but it's, it's been contentious. And I think we, we shifted out of that this time where we became much more so supportive of each other and, um and sort of embracing the friendship and sort of family that it actually is. And, and then the first two pages of Frankenstein, basically Matt apparently read, started reading the book and somehow it, it kind of sparked him out of his malaise and he started he started writing again basically so that you know i think it's a bit of a like a sort of cage cunningham non-sequitur or something sort of you know is it about something or is it not at all about something i don't know but um but he did he credits the book um with some helping him unlock his writer's block
2: are, are you a reader? You, you you mentioned you're inspired by visuals and 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 books. And do you do you read
1: much? I have like a, a yeah long long deep kind of from days back at Yale studying with like a lot of literature, and then since then have had sort of phases of everything. Um, yeah, reading tons. Yeah, I love reading. I've I've been in a um. I've been reading less. I would say I would like, you know, in the past couple of years, I've been really into scores and studying scores, but, um, but yeah, I have, I have pretty much can have, um, you know, have, have a long history with most, most literature. Yeah.
0: And what are you looking forward to?
1: Um, well, I'm excited about the piano concerto that I'm writing for Alice Sarah Ott. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's starting to shape up into something that feels new for me and, um, I have a tour with the Dreamhouse Quartet, which is the group that I've formed with Katia Mariela Beck and David Shalman. that is interesting instead of playing again, so writing music and performing my own music as well as music by a bunch of great composers. And so we have a pretty substantial tour of the US and major venues in late April and early May. And then the creeping up quite soon is an opera project that I'm writing with uh, my close friend visual artist Ragnar Kertensen, Icelandic artist, and then the great Canadian poet um, Anne Carson, and also the American director Alconna Pulitzer. So that piece for the Chicago Lyric Opera is something that I'm, um, I have the libretto and it's incredible. And basically I've been telling myself like, just don't mess it up. Basically so the piece is there for the taking. So I just have to kind of deliver the music. Yep. Yeah.
0: It's a busy year, a busy few years, actually. And, of course, your latest film with Rebecca Miller, she came to me, opens the Berlin Film Festival next month, which is... And I just wanted to ask, finally, um, that film to me is really interesting and I can't wait to see it because not only have you scored it as a film score, but you've also written two opera scenes that are part of the story. And so drawing on both parts in a sense of your world, classical opera and score, did that jive quite nicely together or was it difficult to jump from one to the other?
1: It, it was a wonderful experience. It's the second time I've done, uh, so usually in film, music comes last. Um, you know, they, even they deliver a basically an edited film and everyone else has been working for years and then you're brought in. And um, <clears throat> where this is the opposite basically is, you know, music is primary and they're, they're shooting to the score. So you're, you know, working, I, Rebecca Miller is a really brilliant director and writer. Um, and she came to me with this idea of a, basically it's a film about a composer who has writer's block. Um, I've been talking, that's a theme that keeps coming up. And um, and it's a, it's a kind of a comedic drama or a dramedy or whatever you call that, <clears throat> where there's, it's a lighthearted film, but with like really, beautiful, um, meaning and kind of incredible acting in it. And Hathaway and Marissa Tomei and Peter Dinklage, um, are all incredible in it. Um, and yeah, I got to write basically, you know, the, the story revolves around two operas that he, um, one that he's struggling to write and then one he, that he writes at the end. And, and so I wrote two they you know, they're five minute scenes, I would say um, on screen music, which is a long, it was long for a film and quite elaborate. They're like fully, you know, staged operas um, with amazing singers. Isabel Leonard plays the lead of the first, um, he's like the great American mezzo-soprano. Um, and then the score itself is all performed by, um, it's mo- mostly piano score and pre- written, and performed by Katia Lebec and then with orchestra that I recorded in Paris and And the score itself also weaves into the, you know, the the whole musical imprint of the film is quite um, important and prominent. And so in that way, I would say it's probably the most music forward film that I've gotten to do um, with really wonderful people. And um, it's a clever and... clever and just sort of whimsical film and the the music sounds gorgeous, I think. And it's um, yeah, it's interesting. And, and to top it all off, I got to work on a song with Bruce Springsteen for the end credits so that uh, I'm not sure when you're airing this podcast, if that'll be by Berlin, people will know it, but um, which is soon February 16th. But yeah, um, you know, that was sort of this incredible experience of producing and orchestrating this song and when working really closely with him. So that was, you know, on top of everything else, it was like a dream scenario.
0: We could talk to you all day Bryce but I think I need to let you get back to doing one of the things that you've just mentioned you're looking forward to Um, really great to see you and thanks for taking the time to spend with us maybe we need to do episode two of Bryce Desner This episode of Composing Myself has been brought to you by Wise Music Group. Thanks for listening.